morning, church. You know, every Sunday is a special time to gather with the Lord's body, but today I had uh, several different people that I got to say hi to this morning already that made uh, our fellowship gathering today extra special. Little Paisley has joined us today. Uh, Paisley Sanders here, new baby. Got some friends from Alkire here I saw. Uh, where's Cameron and Rachel? Hey, guys, good to see you. Got some friends from Alabama, I think, right? And even some friends from Memphis that are actually really from Pickerington. So we're, uh, <laughs> we're so glad to have you all with us. And those that weren't able to be with us a couple weeks ago, I want to anchor back to a statement that we made a couple weeks ago about a problem in our society that's becoming almost epidemic. And that problem is overwhelming amounts of fear and anxiety. This problem is becoming paralyzing to people. It's freezing people in their life. It's causing them to pause and to stop and to oftentimes be so overwhelmed. You know, career choices are now making people tremble at the thought of picking a career. Finding a spouse feels insurmountable. Missing out on the right social function or the right social group is just downright terrifying. And it's causing people to run and hide, to delay, and even deflect. It's stirring in us a spirit of criticism and complaint. It's really an erosion of our soul. And the question you have to ask is, why has it become such a problem for us? Like, why have we become a people so, you might say, addicted to anxiety, struck with fear? It seems to permeate our culture almost like the trembling of an earthquake under our feet. It's just kind of everywhere. It's just shaking us a little bit. And I think it's become a problem because we were not wired or designed by God to be people who are constantly afraid. You were not created by God from your original creation to be a person shackled with fear. You were not created by God to be frozen in your life or even paralyzed. In fact, you were created by God to be a pursuing being, a growing being, a hungry being, a thirsty being. The word the Bible would use to sort of sum all this together would be that we were designed to be seekers. We were created by God to seek something, to go after something. But to be a seeker, you've got to be courageous. You've got to be confident. You've got to be fearless. And for years, courage has been supplied to humanity. We, we've received courage and confidence from different sources. From God, our creator has given us confidence. The family unit has given children confidence to be fearless. The community that surrounds people has breathed confidence in young people, like in our schools and in our neighborhoods. The, the mutual friends that we have have breathed confidence into people to be able to be seekers in this life. People outside of us gave us confidence and courage, but something has happened along the way in our culture that is important for us to at least name and know what it is so that we can fight back against it and realize what we're dealing with. And that thing has happened is this. There has been a shift in our narrative, in our culture, our society. And the narrative is now that we are supposed to ignore voices outside of us. 
You're supposed to ignore the voice of authority like God. You're supposed to ignore even the voice of your community. What do they know? And you're even supposed to ignore the voice of your family because, as the narrative will go today, the only voice you're supposed to listen to is your own voice. Sound familiar? The only voice you listen to is your voice. Now that sounds liberating, doesn't it? Whew. Shake off the chains of religion and get rid of my parents' expectations and this community thing, trying to live up to what they, just get rid of all that. If I can just get rid of what everybody else thinks and wants and says, I'll be liberated. But the problem is it's actually paralyzing. Because if you're honest with yourself, your voice will eventually betray you. Your voice will eventually sabotage you. Whose voice was it that really took Eve down in Genesis 3? It was not Satan's voice. It was Satan's distraction, but it was Eve's voice to herself. And it was Adam's voice. You see, your voice will eventually lie to you. It will tell you that all kinds of things they're too afraid to deal with. Probably not able to do it. That you probably should be distracting. Your voice will eventually lead you in the wrong way and it betrays you and paralyzes you. So the question then I want to ask you this morning is we kind of wrestle with a, a modern problem. We sort of like to feel good about ourselves that our problems are modern. This problem has always existed. St. Augustine, I'll quote in just a moment, talked about the idea of anxiety in the 4th century. Like, like, this isn't modern. But we've got an ancient solution to it. And Psalm 27 is your ancient solution. Listen to what David says in verses 1 through 3. You see, if you go online right now and you begin to look up, like, how to overcome worry, how to deal with anxiety, and you read popular magazines or popular publications that are um, trying to deal with how you cope with anxiety and fear, what they tell you to do is visualize the best outcome. So I'm afraid of my job interview tomorrow. I'm afraid of making ends meet financially, or I'm afraid of finding the right spouse. What you're supposed to do to overcome that fear is visualize the best case scenario. And if you visualize the best case scenario, you'll overcome your fear. Now listen to what David does. He says, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, I will be confident. You see, what David actually does is completely opposite of what people tell you to do today. He doesn't, like, play some pseudo-mind tricks with himself, say, the best case scenario, this is going to work for me. i got this internal Tony Robbins that just promises that it's going to happen and I'm going to be delivered. He actually thinks of the worst case scenario. He says, even if I don't get this job or don't find this spouse or don't have enough money, even if, I will not be afraid. And I will remain confident. You want that? I'm not sure you want that. Do you want that? Okay, I'll take the chuckle as a yes. Well, how are we going to find it? we got to become like David. And what David shows us in this psalm is that he is a seeker. That he's not paralyzed by fear and he's not shackled by worry, but he's a seeker. But he's a specific kind of seeker. And you've got to be the kind of seeker that David is to not live life shackled by fear. You see, let's start, first of all, with what David has in his mind, the seeker's prize. 
the seeker's one main object. You see, in verse 4, David is explicit about the one thing that he wants. You see, it might sound okay to, that, that I, for, for me to say to you today, you've got to be a seeker. So what you need to do is just get energized and go after something. Find a goal, find a dream, and approach it. That's not exactly what David, that's not the kind of seeker he is. You see, in verse 4, he says, one thing I've asked of the Lord. One thing. Now, before you get David's answer, pause. If you could ask God for one thing, play the genie game, right? What would you ask for? And the best way for you to find out is ask yourself, what am I worried about most the last week or the last month or the last year? What am I worried about? If you could ask God right now, and he says, I'll give it to you, one thing. What is your one thing? What do you want? And here's the deal. The one thing that a true fearless seeker is after is to dwell with God, to be with him, to have unbroken presence of God in his or her life. You see, this is actually an underlying cause and the main source of our anxiety today. As people, what we've done is we've made other things, good things, but created things, our one main thing. I mentioned to you, I quote Augustine. Augustine was an African theologian in the 4th and 5th centuries. And he was a really interesting thing. If you ever want to bore yourself to sleep one night, read his book called Confessions. It's really hard language, but it's really interesting. And in that book, he says this. He says, here is where anxiety comes from. He was dealing with anxiety in the fourth century. He said, here's where anxiety comes from. He says, all of us have good things we desire, like our parents to be happy with us or to have children someday or to have a job or a career or romance or even sex. He says, all these things are good things created by God. But when we make the good thing our one thing, the thing that you fill in the blank when you say, I'll be happy when I have fill in the blank, the one thing, you've set yourself up for anxiety. Because anxiety is rooted in the loss of your one thing. That's where it is. When you're afraid to lose your one thing, that's the root of anxiety. So if what your one thing is is a career and you're worried about getting the right job or having the right degree to get the right connections and you don't know if that's going to happen, but the job is your one thing. Do you see how anxiety is tied to your fear of the loss of the one thing? Or if your one thing is to have a spouse and a family, those are great things to have. But if that's your one thing, that I'll be happy when, then you begin to worry like, what if I don't find the right person? What if I swipe left and not right? That's an internet joke. Some of you got it, okay. Anxiety is always rooted in your fear of losing your main thing. Now watch. When God becomes your main thing, who can take God from you? Who? Who can take God from you? Who can take... God and his presence and his love and his mercy, his care, his sovereignty, who can take that from you? When God becomes your one thing, your main thing, 
all these other good things actually begin to be enjoyed. You enjoy a spouse. You enjoy a job. You enjoy these things without making them your one thing. And so David answers this question for us. How do we make God our one thing in verse 4? He says we've got to gaze upon his beauty, behold his beauty, think about his beauty, dwell upon his beauty. And we've got to inquire in his temple. Well, how do we do that? That's what David turns number two, not just the seeker's prize, the one thing, but the seeker's plea, what the seeker begs for. David in verse four expounds this request in verses seven through 12 into a prayer in hopes that he might make God his one thing. That's what he wants. In verses eight through 10, he prays to God that God would show him his face or show me your face. That's what his prayer is. Now, what does that mean? Why would, G, why would David here pray in verse 8, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Why is he seeking God's face? It's kind of a strange thing. If what he wants is to dwell with God, to be in God's presence, to have God's presence in his life, why does he say, I want to see your face? I want to seek after your face. Well, let me try to explain. Imagine going to a concert. Have you ever been to a concert? Uh, this is my imagination, so I'm going to pick James Taylor. He's great. I love James Taylor. And people that cover James Taylor should be put in prison, but that's another side note. James Taylor's great. And imagine going to a James Taylor concert. You're sitting in the front row, and James Taylor's playing a song, and you're listening to them, and you're enjoying them. Would you be in the presence of James Taylor in that moment? Yes, right? You'd be in his presence. But would you really know James? Would you be connected to him? But imagine you had a friend who knew him and they brought you backstage after the show and you stand face to face with James Taylor and he asks you questions about your life and you ask him questions about his life and you look eye to eye and you exchange answer upon answer to the questions of inquiry and you make connections. Would you feel like walking away from that concert? You actually know James. That's the difference. You see, there's a generic sense in which God is everywhere, right? He's omnipresent and he's everywhere. And you're in his presence like being at the concert. But until you see him face to face and he asks you questions and you ask him questions and you share answers back and forth and you dig deep into each other's lives and you know each other, you haven't sought his face. I want to get really practical with you. Okay, this is the very practical part of our lesson. So be ready to write this down. How do you see God's face? How do you get face to face with him? Let me give you three really quick ways. Number one, the first step is you've got to begin to retain truth about God. You actually have to know something about him. You actually have to let him tell you information about himself. You won't ever really know God, be connected to God, if you don't know anything about God. Have you ever seen those Barna research studies where they ask people things like, um, what, like, like, is God helps those who help themselves? Is that a Bible verse? And like 78% of Americans think that's a Bible verse, you know? Like, it's not a Bible verse, okay? That, that's not. But it, it's impossible to think that you'll be connected to God if you don't know him. And so you've got to retain truth about God. So let me give you an example. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27 says, when Paul is preaching to the pagans in Athens, he says in Acts chapter 17, 26 and 27, that God has appointed times and seasons and boundaries for people. Meaning he puts us in the right place, in the right time, verse 27, 
that we might seek after him. That's a truth about God. Can you retain that truth about God right now? That he is sovereign and he has his hand in when you live and where you live. That's one number one. Number two, what you've got to do is contemplate the truth about God. It's not enough just to acquire that information and walk out of here and say, I know something about God. He's involved in where people live and where and what time they live in the, in the world. Great. You've got to actually contemplate it. So you've got to ask things like, what does that mean about how God interacts with me? What does that mean about how he interacts with the world? Do you mean that God actually is involved in making me live in 2017, not 1617? Is he involved in that? That he actually has me in Pickerington, Ohio, not a different city in Ohio or a different country than the United States. Is he involved in that? And why would he be involved in that? Because he actually has me here in this place with this group of people at this period of time that I might learn to seek after him because he's not far from me. Wow. Number one, you've got to retain truth about God. Number two, you've got to contemplate that truth. Number three, and this is the hard one. You've got to learn to delight in God because of that truth. Let me show you. Wow, God, there have been times living in Pickerington has been hard. Sometimes I've been a little bit restless, like should my family move from here? And things haven't worked out, or maybe I've thought about it, but things have fallen through, or the job that I wanted didn't happen, and I'm here still. And instead of being bitter and frustrated that I didn't get my dream, God, I trust that you are working things together where I live and how I live and where I'm at so that I will always be able to seek you. God, thank you for that. Help me to trust you more than I trust myself. Do you see that? You've got to spend time retaining truth about God, contemplating that truth about what it means, but you've got to delight in him, be thankful for him because of that truth. And this experience of God is what most religious people seek but rarely find. This elation of God, this exuberance of God, this passion for God, this, you might even call it romance with God. We look for it. We want it. But the problem is we don't always look in the right place. We look to find it through other people sometimes, religiously. We look to find it in maybe coming to a church service and being excited by the songs that we sing and excited emotionally by what happens and just like, like infused with some energy. We look for it in maybe doing service projects or going on a mission trip. Maybe that's where God is. And that's where I'll finally, if I go to the right church or meet the right people or do the right mission trip, then I'll be passionate about God. And that's why the second part of David's prayer is so important. Because it's way simpler than that. See, David doesn't just say, show me your face, God. David says, teach me your ways. You see, the word seek in describing seeker just means to go and inquire to go and learn in fact i believe i don't know should be more commonly heard off our lips than i know given the vast amount of information in this universe the vast complexity of this world the vast nature of who god is don't you think we ought to utter the words i don't know probably more than the words i know and then we come to god and we go to him and we seek counsel and guidance god show me what to do because i don't know show me how to live because i don't always do it right teach me lord your ways and how to live and here's the deal you actually need both of these to have a healthy relationship not just 
seeking his face, but also teaching of his ways. One without the other is not a genuine relationship. If you have his ways without his face, you've got legalism. If you've got his face without his ways, you've got license. You just want emotion and illicit uh, experience. Think about it in the uh, realm of marriage. Um, I read somewhere, I'm still learning how to do this because I'm not proficient at it yet, but about 95% of marriage is just learning how to serve your spouse. Just learning. Just figuring out how to serve them. What they need, what they're insecure about, what they're fearful of, what they love, what they delight in. Just learning how to serve them. But if all you do is service projects for your spouse, that's about half of a relationship. Or if all you seek from a spouse is romance, but don't have the service, there's not much of a relationship there. What God is looking for, what he teaches us in marriage, what he wants with him is both understanding his ways and seeking his face. But we've got a problem. The seeker's prize is to dwell with God. The seeker's plea is to have to see his face and to know his ways. But seekers have a problem. You see, David is familiar with the Torah, the first five books in the Bible, the Old Testament, especially the book of Exodus. In fact, I'm sure that David read Exodus multiple times. This is probably, probably why David had such confidence standing in front of Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of God? God does what he wants. He wins his battles. He probably read the Exodus story over and over, but he did read chapter 33. And in chapter 33, the nation of Israel is getting ready to leave Mount Sinai. And David or Moses in that story says, God, I'm not going unless you go with us. And God says, I'll go with you. But then Moses says, God, will you show me your glory? And God takes Moses and he puts him in a rock. And he hides him with his hands. And he passes by and he says, I'll show you my goodness, but only the backside of me. Because Exodus 33 verse 20 says, no man can see my face and live. I'm too holy, you'll die. You see, David knows that he actually can't go and see God's face. He knows that. The seeker has a problem. We long to connect with God deeply, but we've got a serious problem because we can't stand in his holy presence. David would say in Psalm 24, who can stand in the presence of God? Who can? Rhetorically, no one. And so David says in verse 9, if you'll read with me, he says to God, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. What David is saying is, please God, I want to see your face, but I can't see it unless you show me. If we are ever going to see God's face, he will have to show it to us. Because we on our own are not righteous enough to see it. And to do that, God must make a way. And so this finally brings us to the last point, the seeker's place. The seeker's place. David knows where God will show himself. Location is really important to the psalm. If you read it, you see David uses location words all throughout the psalm. Verses 4 and 5, he talks about God's house, God's temple, God's shelter, God's rock, God's tent. He's talking about these locations. All of them have to do with where God dwells. You see, what David knows is wherever God dwells, that's where God is going to show his face and reveal his ways. And we've got to find where God dwells. 
And I don't believe that David was actually talking about a physical location in this. The temple didn't exist yet. The tabernacle was there, but I don't think David had immense amount of confidence of going inside a canvas tent and guys with real weapons coming after him and stopping once they see the tent. I don't think that's what he meant. I think what he meant was the presence of God is his protection. You see, God will reveal his face and his ways in his temple where he reveals himself. And if you flip over and look in John chapter 2 in the New Testament, Jesus is standing looking at the second temple, which took over 40 years for the Jews to build, rebuild. In the time of Nehemiah and Esther, and they, or, or pardon me, Ezra, they begin to rebuild the temple. And David, or Jesus points and he says, you tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll what? I'll raise it up. What was he talking about? They look at him and say, listen. 40 years, man, to build this. You can't build this in three days. And what Jesus was talking about was not some physical structure, but himself. And in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. The word was with God. The word was God. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. The temple of God, the tabernacle of God, the rock of our safety is not some location in this world. It is Jesus Christ himself. And when you're in him, you'll see the face of God and learn the ways of God. We find the face of God within the person of Jesus Christ. In him is God's beauty and God's way. And that's why Paul would tell us that we need to behold the glory of the Lord. And when we do, we'll be transformed into his image. Now look what happens in verse 6. And I'll be all done. When David knows of this time when he's finally in the temple and in the house and in the shelter and in the rock, when he's finally there and God reveals his face and shows him his ways, he says in verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up. What's he referring to? Well, I really only began to understand this once I had kids, not just babies, but as they started to grow up. You know when children do something wrong and they're sort of swallowed up in grief and in guilt? drowning in a little bit of shame of what they've done how do they approach their parents usually chin in their what in their chest because they know what they've done is wrong and they begin to worry as what i've done is wrong i'm afraid of punishment i don't want to be disciplined but also does this mean that my mom or my dad won't want me and one of the most powerful things a parent can ever do is to say these words Look at me. Look at me. And when you say it, what does the child usually do? They look around, and then you probably oftentimes have to grab the chin of that child and do what? Lift that child up and say, look at me. I know you've done wrong, but we'll make it right. And don't ever think you're not accepted in this house. You see, when you finally get into the temple, Jesus Christ, get into the rock, the safety dwell in the house of God where he shows you his face and teaches you his ways and you become a seeker of him what he's going to do is take your chin and lift your face he's going to say you're mine now stop being afraid let me be your one thing and I'll make all other things right if you need to come come with a stand sir